You can meet me in 2 Corinthians 12 as we study. Uh, we're going to look at the first 10 verses today. Uh, once again, 2 Corinthians 12. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, you're more than welcome to use one of the Bibles that we've provided to you in front of you. It should be in front of you. If you need help finding the passage, there's no shame in that, but you'll find the beginning of our reading on page 911. Uh, for those of you who may be new to FAC, my name is Mike Kazarowski. Uh, it's certainly an honor to serve as the lead pastor here at FAC. Um, I'm always eager to meet new people. And um, uh, if, I, if I haven't had the pleasure to meet you yet, please make yourself known uh, after service. It's, it's always a blessing for me to welcome newcomers, uh, more than you know, uh, more than you even realize. So please do come up uh, after service if we haven't met yet and, and say hello. Uh, for now, uh, we're going to go ahead and turn to God's Word. Once again, I'll read from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, from verses 1 through 10. This is what Paul writes. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Would you pray with me? Father, as we devote these next several minutes to the deep and intentional study of Your Word, would you edify us with your divine truth? We come weak and needy to this task. And so, Father, by your Spirit, would you give us assistance? As the Puritans have prayed, would you give us fullness of matter and clarity of thought? Would your power and strength be evident in this moment, and would your Spirit tune us to your grace? It's in Jesus' name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Last April, uh, we together as a family uh, body of believers charted the course and set sail on a journey through the book of 2 Corinthians. And ever since then, this particular text that I just read has lingered in my mind um, since the beginning of our study. Uh, in, in anticipation, this is the one passage in all of 2 Corinthians um, that I have most looked forward to preaching on, but I've also dreaded the most. Uh, I, I have greatly looked forward to it 
because this passage serves as the climax of the book as a whole. What Paul says here is the hinge on which the entire letter rests on. And verse 9 particularly functions as a thesis statement for, for the entire letter to the Corinthians. However, I have dreaded the passage in that it hits very, very close to home in this season of life for my family and I. I'm hesitant to even begin this way because I share in Paul's discomfort uh, in talking about himself uh, because our time together is not about me, nor should it be. Um, But based on the encouragement and the recommendations of others that I deeply respect, I recognize uh, that it may be beneficial for you to know um, that this is a passage that I have felt in many ways that other passages haven't, that I haven't felt. Uh, I have tasted the words on this page. Um, I know this passage, uh, not just from an intellectual level, but from a heart level. Uh, The last two years, I have come face to face with my own humanity and my own limits and my own weaknesses more than I care for. Um, And this is not to say that my uh, struggles are are any greater than any of yours uh, sitting here today, Um, but these are the ones that I know. Um, Many of you are aware of the circumstances surrounding my daughter, who's going to be four in March. And a little more than two years ago, we began noticing some uh, significant cognitive regression. And to this point, she has virtually zero verbal communication ability. She cannot speak to us, and she cannot understand us when we speak to her. Uh, She she doesn't respond to any kind of communication, whether it be verbal or written or sign language. Uh, She doesn't even know her own name. Our daughter is broken. And what makes things even more challenging is that she actually excels in her physical ability, uh, if, if, if unattended for more than 30 seconds, she would have no problem climbing on top of appliances and on top of dressers and on top of cars, <laughs> uh, destroying things, uh, leaving a trail of disaster everywhere she goes. Um, you, you might not know this, there's been times I've preached from the pulpit and I have heard the screams of my daughter from the hallway. And I have seen out the back window my, my wife try to wrestle her uh, out of the church like an alligator, if you will, um, because she doesn't, she doesn't understand. And so you combine her mental disability with her advanced physical ability, and, and you throw in a determined will that's unlike anything I've ever seen in a four-year-old. Uh, and it's a pretty utterly miserable situation. It's really quite overwhelming, and it has turned our entire life upside down. There isn't a single minute of our day or area of life that has not been touched by this hardship. It's impossible for us to have what one would call a normal life. Um, She did have brain surgery back in November. Many of you know that. And we've noticed some minimal improvements, um, but it is beginning to feel like this is forever. And so over the course of the last several years, on many occasions, my family and I have had to ponder the role of suffering in the life of a Christ follower. Uh, My older two, particularly my nine and seven-year-old, have often asked questions with tears in their eyes as they fall asleep. Why would God do this to us? 
Why doesn't God fix her? And this is exactly the type of question that Paul addresses here in the text, in the passage. And so let's look at it together. Verse 1, if you recall, Paul is knee-deep in a debate that actually goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 10. Paul is addressing false teachers who are leading the Corinthians astray. And these particular teachers have challenged the credibility of Paul as a messenger of Jesus. Uh, Now, from the context of the passage, we get the sense that these other teachers are elevating themselves over the apostle Paul because of their numerous supernatural experiences, right? That they were somehow greater messengers of Jesus because of their ecstatic encounters with God. These first verses of chapter 12 are clearly a response to those claims. Paul says, you want to talk about supernatural ecstatic experiences? I will, I will share about one with you. He addresses it, yet he packs a powerful theological punch by the end of his explanation. In response, Paul reluctantly shares about an experience of his own. Now, it seems odd at first, because Paul is actually speaking in the third person, uh, as if he was telling someone else's story. But there's no question in anyone's mind that this is, in fact, Paul's story. And we know this because he actually switches back to the first person in verse 6, and he even mentions that he was the recipient of the revelations. Why he speaks in the third person is anyone's guess, but there's a realistic possibility that uh, he's sort of distancing himself from the situation uh, because of his disdain for boasting, right? Like we talked about last week. He, he uses the third person because of his discomfort, because uh, he's almost embarrassed, right? Talking about this experience that he had. It's like when I was a youth pastor, there were several occasions where I would have teenagers approach me for advice being their youth pastor, and they would always begin with saying, Pastor Mike, I have a friend who is going through this situation. Oh, you have a friend, huh? Paul doesn't indulge the situation, so he speaks in the third person. That's probably the best that we can do. But in very few words, Paul shares about this just utterly incredible supernatural experience. Paul writes, I know a man in Christ, which means that Paul was a believer at the time, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven and he heard things that he could not, that could not be told, which man may not utter. You may wonder what Paul means when he uses the phrase, the third heaven. Um, in the, in the inter, intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, in the Jewish culture, people started to, to develop this outlook of heaven that it was like three different levels or different levels of, of heaven, right? And um, it, it was often believed in that culture that there were different heavenly realms, different level of, of heaven. And, and one popular concept, which Paul is probably alluding here, is that the heavens were threefold with the atmosphere, right? The sky being the first heaven, Uh, And then outer space, the realm of the stars, if you will, is the second heaven. And then the dwelling place of God, the third heaven, is how we would picture heaven in our culture, right? The third heaven is God's abode. 
And it's evident in this passage that Paul is talking about the dwelling place of God because he later equates it to paradise, which always in Scripture equated to to heaven as we understand heaven, the, the living place where God lives, literally. And so don't get caught up too much on this concept of the third heaven. Just know that Paul in this event was brought to heaven. He was brought into the literal presence of God in this experience. And Paul says that he was caught up, which means that he was unexpectedly and aggressively pulled from the earth into the highest of heavens. He was snatched up, uh, if you will. Uh, And this indicates that God is the initiator of this experience for Paul. God is the one who snatched him up at this moment. And it was such a radical and such a jarring experience that Paul can't even tell for sure if he was physically pulled up or if he, if this was just sort of some kind of uh, out-of-body experience. Now, what an incredible experience. Apart from the book of Revelation, we have nothing like it in all of the New Testament and maybe in all of Scripture. If this happened to somebody today, they would go on to write best-selling books about this event. They would go on to film movies about this. It would be near impossible to keep it to themselves. But what must not be overlooked in this passage is how blatantly nonchalant Paul's attitude is about the experience. We see it in several ways. The first in verse 1, Paul mentioned he's going to address the issue of visions and revelations, even though there is nothing to be gained by it. Basically, Paul says, look, I had this experience, and it was amazing, and it had great personal value to me, but it serves no useful purpose in ministry. No one is edified. The church is not built up based on this personal spiritual experience that I had. It it can't equip you. It can't instruct you. It can't direct you. And so what good is it? Right. The, The purpose of this particular event was to build up Paul individually. What Paul heard in that moment in heaven, in the midst of God, was for Paul's ears only. It wasn't meant for the church which is why Paul doesn't even talk about the event for seemingly 14 years. This seems to be the first time that Paul has ever mentioned this in a decade and a half. 14 years Paul was silent about this. We have no record of him talking about it otherwise. He was with the Corinthians for over a year and a half, and this was probably the first time they had ever heard about this event because to this point, it hasn't been beneficial in ministry to mention it. It is now, and we'll explain why, but to this point, it hasn't been. And even when Paul finally gets around to bringing it up, the details about the event are surprisingly sparse. In less than 75 words, Paul explains his trip to heaven and back. If he actually takes out the phrase which he repeated about whether it was an in-body experience or out-of-body experience, he could pull up Twitter on his cell phone and tweet in a single tweet, the same story. That is how brief this is. This is a bare bones description of what happened, which often causes us as readers many times to say, whoa, Paul, pump the brakes because I've got some questions about what you just said. 
you got to give me more than that. Come on now, Paul, share, me, share the details. And Paul says, no. Well, why not? He tells us why not in verse 6. Paul writes, I, I don't want to boast about this, although I could boast about this, and I would be completely justified in boasting about this because it's true, it happened. But I refrain from it, Paul writes, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, I want you to evaluate me as a messenger of Jesus on the basis of what you can see with your own two eyes and what you can hear with your own two ears rather than on the basis of what I say about myself that you cannot verify. Let my work, let my own work do the talking, Paul says. You see, Paul doesn't want his ministry to be marked by the subjective, emotional, spiritual experiences, even though they do happen, and even though they do have their place in the life of a believer. Instead, Paul wants his ministry to be marked by the objective, redemptive work of God in history, in time, and in space. Paul's ministry is marked in events that can be verified. By others. And as a side note, this actually says something about Christianity, does it not? In the complete story of the Bible. Many believers today consider their personal and private individual experiences of God of greater value than God's objective self revelation in time and space. And Paul rejects that here. Once again, he says those things have value, but they do not have more value than what God has done objectively in time and space. The biblical foundation of our faith is not based on a secret wisdom or a hidden revelation that only certain believers are privy to. Right? The, the biblical foundation of our faith is not based on individual experience. No, the biblical foundation of our faith is based on the fact that God has objectively revealed himself in plain sight for all to see in the person of Jesus Christ. And so our ministries and how we go about public ministry should follow suit. However, if that is why Paul is so nonchalant about this experience that he had, why even mention it at all? Paul, you've been quiet about this for 14 years. Why bring it up now? Well, he mentions it because it affords him the opportunity to share what happened next. It, it gives him the chance to, uh, to, to, to allow Paul to talk what he really wants to talk about, what he's really here for, right? He uses it as a springboard, if you will, to draw attention to what Paul really wants to talk about. Uh, let's continue on, verses 6 through 7, right? Um, having had such an incredible divine revelation, we could imagine Paul's ego grew several sizes that day. I must be pretty special if God himself snatched me out, interrupted my day, took me out, snatched me up, caught me up, and then told me things that only I was allowed to hear. Oh, look at me. 
It would be quite impossible for that to happen uh, to, to anyone without them thinking too highly of themselves. And so Paul tells us what happens next in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, because these were so amazing. To keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. The, The word Paul uses for conceited here literally means to exalt yourself to exalt oneself. It's an act that many of us do without even realizing it because our hearts are laced with sin. We are inclined to elevate ourselves, not just above other people, but more grievously, we have a desire to elevate ourselves above God. Right? If you could boil the human predicament down to a simple concept It's that we are in warfare with God on whether we elevate ourselves or we elevate Him. This is why John the Baptist uh, told his followers in John 3 that He, being Jesus Christ, must increase and I must decrease. Right? It's it's like we're playing a, a, a giant game of King of the Hill. Remember that when you were younger, you'd find the closest hill and, and whoever, whatever biggest kid was at the top of the hill, uh, sat on the throne. They were the King of the Hill. And, And we're playing this game of King of the Hill with God where we try to dethrone God. We're trying to knock Him off the hill, which is foolish because God cannot be dethroned. It's impossible for that to happen, but it doesn't stop us from trying. And since God will not share the throne, and rightfully so, sometimes he sends reminders our way. In the case of Paul, we're told that in order to stop him from elevating himself, he was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. This this is one of the most widely speculated verses in all of Scripture because people so desperately want to know Paul. What was the thorn? And he doesn't tell us. Now, when we study scripture, we need to remember that just as important as what's included in the text is also what's not included. Paul is intentionally ambiguous here for a good reason. He is deliberately vague so that the application of the text expands to a broader audience. We don't need to know what the thorn was because that's not Paul's point. We don't need to know what the thorn was and truth be told, it would actually be a disservice to us if we did because the truths of this passage apply beyond those who share in Paul's specific thorn. And so we ought not to speculate because that's not the point. Instead, we can focus on what we can know about the thorn. We know that the thorn harassed Paul. Another word that we could use is the word torment. So this speaks to the intensity of the thorn a little bit, right? the severity of the thorn. It was more than just a, a minor annoyance. It did have a, a, a significant debilitating impact on Paul. And we get the sense that it was an ongoing experience, that this was not just an isolated event, but a recurring bout. And there's a strong chance that he still deals with the thorn at the time of writing this letter. It's probably something that he has dealt with 
off and on perhaps for 14 years. And we know that it was given to him to knock him down a few pegs. And so in our context, for our sake, what is the thorn? The thorn is anything that we experience that is a nagging reminder of our humanity. The thorn is anything that we experience, whether it be a physical uh, issue, a mental issue, an emotional issue, a spiritual issue. It's, It's any kind of painful event or events designed to humble us and remind us that we are not God. Something else we know about the thorn is that the thorn was given to Paul. And once again, based on how this is written, we get the indication that the thorn was given to Paul by God. One commentator writes that just as God was the one who was responsible for the ecstasy of Paul's rapture to the third heaven, God was also responsible for the agony of this thorn. Because remember, the thorn was given to Paul for his benefit, not to elevate himself. Right? And so if it was given by anybody else, if it was given by the devil, if you will, the devil does not seek to build up Paul. He seeks to tear him down. But this thorn was given so that Paul wouldn't elevate himself. It was given for his good. It was given by God. And you read that and you say, well, that can't be right because Paul calls it a messenger of Satan. How can that be? How is this possible? Peter, the Apostle Peter, actually helps us out in his, in his book. In 1 Peter uh, 5, the Apostle writes, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, Peter is saying that suffering is, is the method in which Satan devours. That is how Satan devours us, through suffering. However, in 1 Peter 3, a few chapters prior, Peter writes, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. In other words, there is a place for suffering in God's will. What this means is that while suffering is indeed a messenger of Satan, the jaws of the prowling lion are only opened and closed as God allows, only according to the sovereign will of God. God is not the author of suffering, but suffering does fall within the scope of God's divine authority and sovereign purposes. And if you need any more evidence that this is true, consider the events surrounding the cross. In Acts chapter 2, once again, Peter is preaching to the crowds of Jerusalem about the events of the cross. And he says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The vilest act in all of human history was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the supreme being hanging on a cross, punished for crimes that he didn't commit, yet God the Father ordained this to happen. This was part of his will. And who was a primary player in all of this? 
Judas, a man that the Scripture says was entered into by Satan. Judas, literally, a messenger of Satan. And so if we can accept the premise of the cross, that God is able to use the activity of Satan according to his own purposes, then we ought to be able to accept the personal implications of this when it comes to our own suffering. Now, just because we understand suffering's place in our life, it's not to say that we desire it nor enjoy it. Paul clearly didn't want the thorn in his flesh because in verse eight, he does what any of us would have done in the situation. He goes to God for the solution, right? Recognizing that God is the one who gave him the thorn. God is also the one who can take away the thorn. And so Paul prays, he pleads specifically to Jesus three times that the thorn leave him, that it would be removed. Uh, don't, don't get caught up too much on the fact that Paul only asked three times. It'd be easy for us to read that and say, well, it must have not been that bad if Paul only asked three times for it to be removed. I'm fairly certain that he's not talking about a literal three times as many assume, but that Paul is actually using a literary device here, right? To do or say something three times in scripture, it signifies a measure of completeness, Um, Similarly, in this passage, just as heaven, the third heaven represents the highest uh, level of heaven, praying three times could represent that Paul um, prayed at the highest level. He he prayed uh, and pleaded to its fullest. He prayed to the point of exhaustion. He prayed all the praying that he needed to do. What's important, though, is that what we learn from the situation is that Paul did not enjoy the thorn in his flesh. Paul did not welcome hardship. It's okay to experience suffering and desire for it to be taken away. It's okay to go to God in our time of need and ask him to remove the thorn. You have permission to do that. There is nothing wrong with you desiring God to take away the pain and take away the the suffering. And sometimes he will take it away. But there are other times where he won't. How devastating this passage is as we track with Paul, a hero of the faith, a man who probably had more faith than anybody in this room, who goes to Jesus excessively pleading with him to take away the thorn. And Jesus says, no. I'm not going to do that. Heart-wrenching. This is one of the most grueling realizations in all of Scripture. That the sovereign, all-powerful God who orchestrated my thorn and has the ability to take it away, won't take it away. Despite my desperate pleas. That drives many people to a position of anger and even a position of disbelief. And you will always be angry at God. And you will always have a spirit of disbelief until you understand that God has a reason for his actions, that there is purpose in the thorn. You will always be angry at God until you let the truth of verse 9 embed into your soul. Jesus does not comply with Paul's request. However, he does not remain silent. He speaks. And he responds with a truth that is so profound that it's impossible to do it justice. My grace is sufficient for you. 
My power is made perfect in weakness. The answer to Paul's prayer is in God himself. God's grace is God's favor towards us. It's his posture towards us. It represents his activity. Uh, Here it represents his presence. And, And grace is not something we earn nor deserve, but rather it's given to us. Just as the thorn was given, his grace to accompany it is given to us freely. If we are in Christ, it means that we are the recipients of God's grace, not because we did anything to somehow impress God, not because we somehow earned it. No, grace by definition is God's unmerited benevolence towards us. And this grace, Jesus says, is sufficient, meaning it's it's enough. It's all that we need. And it's not enough just for today, but all subsequent days to kingdom come and beyond. Even in eternity, we will be upheld and secured by God's grace, by his unmerited favor. There's nothing that we've done or will do to to allow to remain in God's presence. It's his grace that upholds us and it's enough to satisfy and it's enough to counteract any thorn that could come our way. When we experience the thorns of this life, it does us well to remember that God's grace is sufficient. So so when I am deeply flooded with sorrow, is God enough? When my life is in shambles, is God enough? When I have so many questions that have no answers, is God enough? When, When the worldly pleasures and treasures are ripped from my life, is God enough? And if in your eyes and in your particular situation, he is not, then the God you worship is much too small and is not the God of the Bible. So Paul, no, I will not remove the thorn. Why? Because my grace is sufficient. I am enough. The fact that I have favor towards you, the fact that I am for you, the fact that I am on your side is enough. I will sustain you. I will calm you. I will comfort you. I will strengthen you. You will know my power and you would, you would never know the fullness of my power unless the thorn remains. And that's the startling follow-up to Jesus' answer, right? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That verb um, to to be made perfect here in verse 9, it literally means to be brought to completion, to, to finish, to be brought to fulfillment, to find consummation. What this means is that you will never know and experience the fullness of God's power unless you are weak. No experience will better acquaint you with God's powerful hand than your weakness. The full, complete power of Christ is not known nearly as well in other experiences. Remember the context here. Paul's talking about revelations. He's talking about visions. He's talking about these huge ecstatic experiences and how these other men boast. But the power of God, Paul says, is not in visions and not in revelations of magnificence and splendor. The power of God is not in the emotional and spiritual highs of life, not on the mountaintop, but in the valley in the sustaining and sufficient grace of God that doesn't necessarily deliver me from my immediate hardships, but brings me through 
walks me through my hardship. A believer will never see the enormity of God and his power until they are brought to a very low place. One of the greatest gifts of suffering is that we experience the fullness of God's power in a way that a life of ease and comfort would never produce. And so Paul boasts all the more gladly of his weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon him. That's our application. Right? When, when we are stricken with suffering and weakness, we don't have to desire it, but we should delight in it. We can boast in it. C.H. Spurgeon, who was well acquainted with suffering, once said that I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. We kiss the wave because the wave affords us the opportunity for Christ's power to take up residence in our heart. The, the word for rest here literally means to dwell. And it's very close to the word that John uses in John 1 when he says that the word became flesh, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Using similar imagery here, Paul communicates that the all-powerful Christ pitched his tent with his people in the flesh. And as he has done that, he pitches his tent in our weaknesses as well. Our agony is the very place where God himself lives. And as Jesus walked in our shoes, the fullness of God experienced the fullness of our weakness and suffering, not just as a human being, but at the cross. And so I don't know what kind of suffering you are experiencing in this present time right now. But I do know that it's very easy to fall into the trap and say, no one knows what I'm going through. Jesus knows. Jesus has felt your pain. And on the night before he was crucified, he prayed to his father in heaven. Three times, he pleaded with God to release him from the obligation to go to the cross. He said, Father, if there's any other way to accomplish your will, if there's any other way to display your redemptive, glorious power other than me going to the cross, please do it. But if not, then your will be done. And within 24 hours of that prayer, Jesus would experience the ultimate weakness of humanity as he submitted himself to death so that the redemptive and restorative power of God would be known at his resurrection. This isn't my quote, but I just heard it yesterday. There is no gospel apart from suffering. And so we boast in it, and we delight in it, and we find contentment in it as the power of Christ dwells in us. Would you pray with me?
And Lord, this is one of the most challenging passages in all of Scripture. But we know why it's there. Because suffering is a very real part of our life. And it's easy, Lord, to ask the questions and not receive answers and then be very, very, very frustrated with you, Lord. It's hard not to be angry at you, God. But we trust you and we trust in your glorious sovereignty, in your glorious providence that while we don't have all the answers, you do. And so I pray, Father, that in our suffering we would submit to your will as Christ did, your Son. And I pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself and show us your power, as you have promised, in the midst of our greatest weaknesses. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.